If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel, to Daniel chapter 1. And let's start as we always do with a little bit of background on the book. First of all, it was written by Daniel. We know that. What Daniel means is that God is my judge. God is my judge. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, Daniel was a relative of King Zedekiah. We've always known from scripture that he was from nobility, but it's Josephus who tells us that his relationship is to King Zedekiah, who was the last king of Judah before the Babylonian captivity. That's from Antiquities of the Jews, Book 10, Chapter 10. Daniel wrote this book in the 6th century BCE, that is in the 500s. He went into captivity into Babylon about 606 to 605. And that's in the 7th century. So he's in the captivity when he writes the book. So we don't know exactly when, but he wrote it while he was in captivity. He went into captivity in the first wave. Babylon took captives from Judah three different times. The first wave, 606 to 605 BCE, not only did Daniel go and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they come to be called, that was not their Hebrew names, but also in that first group of captives went Mordecai from the book of Esther. He was in that same group. He was brought to Babylon to serve in the government of Babylon. That first wave of captivity, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sent in his officers to bring back the best, the brightest, the most good-looking, the most athletic, the most intelligent, the best of Jewish society to add to their own. And that was their modus operandi, was whenever they conquered a nation, to take the best and the brightest to try and graft them into their society to improve Babylonian society. He continued serving all the way through the Babylonian captivity and into the Medo-Persian, and then he returned back to the land of Israel, we're going to see. So... Um, But Jewish people say Daniel was not a prophet. So his writings are not in the Nevi'im and the Tanakh. The Nevi'im are the prophets. His are in the Ketuvim, which is the writings. They say he was not a prophet. But what did Messiah say? Keep a finger here and go to Matthew 24, 15. Messiah very specifically refers to him as Daniel the prophet. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination and desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So why would the Jewish people say Daniel's not a prophet and Messiah says that he is? The book of Daniel tells us that Messiah was to come in the first century. And they say, well, he didn't come in the first century, so Daniel's a false prophet. What do you and I know? Messiah did come. Messiah's 
fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy was precisely what Daniel said it would be in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. But if you're going to deny that Daniel was a prophet, then you don't have to think about the fact that Messiah actually fulfills the prophecy quite literally, quite accurately. In addition to Matthew 24, 15, we, we find the same thing in Mark chapter 13, verse 14, if you want to make a note. The date of the writing was around 530 BCE, the year 530, which would mean that Daniel was in captivity a long time before he wrote, which is how he's able to write about things right up to the very end of the Babylonian Empire. The modern critics, you know, there's all those modern Bible critics, say they say Daniel did not write this book. This book wasn't written until around 130 BCE because none of it's prophetic, all of it's historical. Somebody claiming to be Daniel is simply recording historically what already happened because, you know, God can't prophesy the future. Yeah, it makes me roll my eyes too. But you know what they found in Qumran Cave 1? A copy of the book of Daniel that predates the Maccabeans. Which makes some of those modern day scholars look really silly, doesn't it? The type of literature, it's apocalyptic. It and Revelation go hand in hand, hand in hand, or like a hand in a glove. It introduces major characters and images that are used in the book of Revelation, where Revelation doesn't really describe them or define how they come to be, because Daniel does. If you don't understand Daniel, it's hard to understand Revelation. Just as one example, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, we read about a beast with seven heads and ten horns. We see that same beast in Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. And there they simply say, riding a beast with, you know, seven heads and ten horns. You have to know Book of Daniel in order to understand exactly what they're talking about. The book breaks down into these five categories, really. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar's history is in chapter 4. The fall of Babylon is in chapter 5, how and why Babylon was overthrown by Medo-Persia. Number 3 is the four world empires that will reign until the Messianic kingdom. That is in chapters 2 and chapter 7. So the book of Daniel is in no wise in chronological order. Number number 4 rather is the fight between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies after the death of Alexander the Great. That's in chapter 11. And the last section is Messiah the Prince, which is in chapter 9. Its purpose, its main functional purpose, is to remind Israel when they go into captivity that God has not abandoned Israel. God has not forgotten his promises. God will fulfill every promise he made, including to send the Messiah for the salvation of mankind. And also that repentance is essential.
One of the interesting characteristics of the book of Daniel is what language is it written in? It's written in Hebrew from chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. Then it picks up with Aramaic halfway through verse 4 of chapter 2 and goes to the end of chapter 7 and then back to Hebrew from chapters 8 to the end. And you'll find that when Daniel is primarily addressing Israel, it's in Hebrew. When he's primarily addressing Nebuchadnezzar and the court in Babylon, it's in Aramaic. How close are Aramaic and Hebrew to each other? They are very close. So if you just heard somebody reading the book of Daniel, you might think they're reading Hebrew, they're just not very good at it. <laughs> With that, let's get on to the book of Daniel. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of John... Yes, some... So, sir, who was that? Just to say the thing about where Daniel was placed, um, I've got two um, modern translations. One of them is the Hallelujah Scriptures, which you've got in front of you there, mm -hmm. that put Daniel back um, uh, in the prophets um, as it was in very ancient times. Okay. Rather than in the writings. Okay. Thank you. Daniel chapter 1 verse 1, which is wrong. So we need to be very careful reading it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But it wasn't in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So why does it say it is if it isn't? Well, let's go back to 2 Kings and see if we can't understand why it may look wrong, but it's correct if we interpret it correctly. 2 Kings chapter 22. I know it's a long introduction. We're going to read chapter 22, verse 11, all the way to chapter 24, verse 4. So 2 Kings 22, verse 11. Ready? I see some people are not yet ready. Now it happened. When the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Which king is this? This is Josiah. What does it mean when a king heard the words of the book of the law? It had been lost. People didn't even know it existed anymore. Till the priest working and cleaning up the temple found a copy, read it to the king, and the king tore his clothes white. What does that indicate? Great mourning and grief to find that we've had this word of God and forgotten it, and we've sure been violating its terms. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah, servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me. For the people and for all Judah. Concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. To do according to all that is written concerning us. Is that a true statement? Is Josiah right? The people have greatly sinned against the Lord. Yes, very much so. Who does Josiah follow but Manasseh? Was there a more wicked king than Manasseh? I don't think so. 
So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Achbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to Huldah the priest, the prophetess. The wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And he spoke with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. What does it say in Deuteronomy chapter 28? If they turn away from God, they're going to go into captivity. Yeah, that's what the prophetess is saying. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods. That they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. So he's going to die and be buried before the captivity comes. And your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. Chapter 23, verse 1. Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. Which book do you think he's reading them? Deuteronomy. Then a king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priests of the second order, and of the doorkeepers, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal. Where were the articles made for Baal? In the temple. Not only for Baal, but also for Asherah, Ishtar, Easter, and for all the host of heaven. So the temple was full of pagan idols. And he commanded the priest to bring them out. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron. Where's Kidron? That's the valley between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. It's called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. That's the place where when they do the sacrifices in the temple, the blood runs down into the Kidron Valley. It says, and carried their ashes to Bethel. Then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah. Are they burning incense to God? No, they're burning incense to pagan idols, 
on all the high places. It says, in the places all around Jerusalem, and those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellation, to all the host of heaven. And he brought out the wooden image. What wooden image? The Asherah tree. From the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem, burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to ashes and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people, that is, that had worshipped them. Then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons. These are ritual prostitutes, both male and female, heterosexual and homosexual, that were in the house of the Lord. She could go up to the temple on the temple mount and hire prostitutes. They've gone full circle. Can you imagine how this offended God? Says where the women were were hangings, wove hangings for the wooden image. Sorry, <clears throat> something caught in my throat. Just something I saw in the news just a few minutes before I came tonight. In the city of New York, they've erected a new statue at the city court, a pagan goddess statue to support and promote abortion. Yeah. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and, the, and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. Also he broke down the high places at the gates which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread amongst their brethren. And he defiled Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. The Hinnom Valley, Gehinnom, is where they burned the children to the pagan god Moloch. It's just outside the temple complex. That no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Moloch. Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. Why would they dedicate horses to the sun? The pagans said special horses carry the sun god through the sky. And that's what causes the sun to come up in the morning, go down in the afternoon. And the kings of Judah had dedicated special horses to the sun god. At the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. The altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke down and pulverized there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. Then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, both that altar and the high place he broke down and he burned the, the place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. Remember where this was prophesied? In 1 Kings chapter 13. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain. 
And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Again, 1 Kings chapter 13. Then he said, What gravestone is this that I see? So the men of the city told him, It's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, Let him alone. Let no one move his bones. So he let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all the deeds he had done in Bethel. Oops, I got two red circles out there. Let's see what they are. Is Aramaic the same as Chaldean? The answer to that is yes. Aramaic is the language of Chaldea. Why am I reading all this? Because it explains why God allows Babylon to destroy Israel. So let's keep reading. Verse 19. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all the deeds he had done in Bethel. He executed all the priests of the high places, their pagan priests, who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them, and he returned to Jerusalem. All that had been prophesied back in 1 Kings 13. Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Now before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger was aroused against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. I wanted to specifically to talk about this for a minute. God will defer the judgment until after the death of Josiah. But God is not going to let go of his promised destruction. Did God promise in Deuteronomy 28 that when Israel went astray like this, he was going to send them into captivity? So all the repenting that Josiah can do is not going to change the fact that the clock is ticking on the judgment. It's just a matter of time. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight, that is to put him into captivity, as I have removed Israel. How long has Israel been gone now at this point in time? More than a hundred years. 
They went into captivity in Assyria in 722 BCE and have not yet come out. And will cast off this city Jerusalem which I have chosen and the house of which I had said my name shall be there. Is God's name on the city of Jerusalem? Yes it is. It's in the mountains and the valleys. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all they did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now what if? The king who follows Josiah is just as godly as Josiah and keeps the country turn their hearts to the Lord. Then judgment would pass on down the line. But what happens as soon as Josiah is gone? Verse 29. In the days of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went to the aid of the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went out against him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo. When he confronted him. At Megiddo. What's going to happen to Megiddo in the future? Battle of Armageddon. That's where Armageddon comes from. It's from Har Megiddo. The Mount of Megiddo. What had God told King Josiah about going out to this battle? He said don't do it. Josiah said I'm going anyway. Well he dies. Then his servants moved his body in the chariot from Megiddo. Brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him, made him king in his father's place. So this is Josiah's son. Jehoahaz was 23 years old and became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. How long? Three months. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done, meaning everything Josiah undid. Jehoahaz put back. Removed all the good things and put back all that Manasseh had done to offend the Lord God. Uh, Verse 33. Now Pharaoh Necho put him in prison at Ribla in the land of Hamat that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. So Israel, or Judah now, the northern king of Israel is gone, so Judah is all that's left of Israel, becomes subservient to Pharaoh Necho. They're no longer the same kind of independent nation they were before. You understand they're a vassal state? It says, Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim the son of Josiah, king in place of his father Josiah, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh took Jehoahaz and went to Egypt, and he died there. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land and from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old and became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebudah, the daughter of Padiah of Ramah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. So Jehoahaz went back to the ways of Manasseh. He was taken away by Pharaoh Necho. His brother Jehoiakim becomes king and continues the policies of Manasseh, the most evil and wicked king Judah ever saw. Chapter 24, verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. So now that 
Pharaoh has lost control of Judah. Babylon comes and makes Judah a vassal state to Nebuchadnezzar. Then he turned and rebelled against him. So Jehoiakim rebels and turns against Nebuchadnezzar. And the Lord sent against him reigning bands of Chaldeans, those are Babylonians, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, the bands of the people of Ammon. He sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he has spoken by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. Also because of the innocent blood that he had shed, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Do you see that phrase, which the Lord would not pardon? What did God say must be done for those who spill innocent blood? They must die, or the land will not be forgiven. It will be polluted by the shedding of innocent blood. So the punishment of those that have shed innocent blood was not carried out, so God would not pardon the land. Okay, so what did we learn in chapter 24, verse 1? That Jehoiakim became the vassal to Nebuchadnezzar for three years. Now let's go back to Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That means in the third year after Jehoiakim turned against the king of Babylon, threw off their vassal state status, and resumed the kingdom status as an independent nation. So does that make sense now? So it's not the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, it's the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim since he was once again an actual king instead of a vassal to Nebuchadnezzar. So it's actually more than that. Go back to Jeremiah. I think it's Jeremiah chapter 25. Yes, chapter 25 of Jeremiah, starting in verse 1. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jehoiakim became king before Nebuchadnezzar became king of Babylon. But then Nebuchadnezzar had come up and made Judah a vassal state. For three years, and then Judah regained its independence, and that's what we mean in chapter one, verse one. Eight to ten years, yeah, something like that. Sorry, that was a long way to explain what they mean in verse one. Because when people go back and they look at Jeremiah, they say, wait, it couldn't be the third year of Jehoiakim's reign if Nebuchadnezzar didn't begin to reign until, yeah, okay. But now we understand. So, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now do we know why? 
Because Jehoiakim continued the ways of Manasseh, continued to spit in God's face. So the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the articles of the house of God. What's the house of God? That's the temple. Which he carried into the land of Shinar. What does Shinar mean? Do you know? In Aramaic, it means two rivers. The two main rivers that flow through Babylon are the Tigris and Euphrates. That's why it's called the plain of Shinar. That's the land between the two rivers. To the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So let's go back first to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. Let's see why and how this happens. Micah. Micha. Who is like. Chapter 4. What do you know, most know Micah chapter 4 about? It talks about Migdal Ader. It talks about what? Migdal Ader. It talks about Migdal Ader. It also is parallel, the first few verses to Isaiah 2, verse 2, about the Lord establishing the kingdom and everybody coming up to it. But we want to look at verse 10. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. That's in the future. For now, you shall go forth from the city, that's Jerusalem. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So unlike the northern kingdom that went into the Assyrian captivity and didn't come out, Micah says you're going into captivity in Babylon, but the Lord's going to bring you back home. Then let's go to Jeremiah 25, 11. Jeremiah 25, 11. It's not like God didn't give Judah fair warning that captivity was coming. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, it tells us how long Judah is going to be in the Babylonian captivity. And this whole land shall be a desolation and astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. How long? Seventy years. Then it will come to pass, when seventy years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I'll make it a perpetual desolation. I thought Israel was the only nation that God ever punished. No. Quite the opposite. Let's go to Habakkuk or Habakkuk if you prefer. What do we know Habakkuk mostly for? The just shall live by faith. But this is Habakkuk chapter 1. That's from chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 1 would read verses 5 through 11 and maybe a touch more. Even though it might be an Ibex trail. Verse 5 says, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. 
For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans. Babylon was a nothing town until God said, I got a purpose for you. Then it becomes a mighty army. A bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They will take captive every nation of the world. Right. Yes, ma'am. Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldees. He absolutely was. So God called Abraham to come out of the Ur of the Chaldees to leave pagan idolatry behind and come to worship God in the land of Canaan. And when his descendants decide to return to pagan idolatry, God puts them back in Chaldea from whence Abraham came and said, if you didn't learn a lesson, let me teach you one. Yes, you're right, Miss Melanie. Verse 7, they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. So Babylon is given this power, this ability to conquer by the Lord our God. And who do they give credit to? Their God, the pagan gods. What do you think is going to happen then? You can eat grass for seven years and learn a lesson. Yeah. Okay. But notice verse 12. I know it's not exactly on point, but are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Notice those three terms being parallel in the one sentence. The Lord is the Tetragrammaton, my God, Elohim, my Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. Okay. On to Isaiah chapter 39. Babylon is not just going to take Israel captive, but all nations. So all nations suffer under God's judgment except for Babylon. But then Babylon gets overthrown by Medo-Persia, which is going to conquer all nations and rule over them. And all nations will be under God's judgment except Medo-Persia. Until they get overthrown. But I digress. Isaiah chapter 39. Starting in verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. Who's he showing it to? The king of? Babylon. Babylon. 
Look at all this wealth that I have. All that was found in his treasure. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country, from Babylon. Now they're so far away, we couldn't possibly be concerned about them. He said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. They shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. That includes Daniel. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Oh my goodness. Is that a good attitude to take with the Lord? Hey, at least it won't happen to me. Oh my goodness. That's the last time we read about Hezekiah. <laughs> On to Genesis chapter 11. Just don't forget what we just read in Isaiah 39. Genesis chapter 11. Verses 2 to 9. We can even include verse 1. What the heck? we got plenty of time. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Of course it was English, right? I don't think so. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. That's the same Shinar that we're reading about in Daniel chapter 1. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar. They said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Or said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. See that word, Babel? That is the word that's translated Babylon in the book of Daniel. It's the same word. So Babel means confusion. So we shouldn't be reading about Babylon. We should be reading about Babel. Why they make it Babylon? Don't really know. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 1. Notice in verse 2 again it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand, that's Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, 
with some of the articles of the house of God. What did God tell Hezekiah and Isaiah? Everything is going to go to Babylon. So when it says here, some of the articles, that's where we begin to see this is not going to be the only wave of captivity. There's going to be a total of three. The first I mean, wave. What is the Isaiah scripture again? Isaiah was chapter 39, verses 1 through 8. So with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, he brought the articles in the treasure house of his God, which, as you know, is going to be the downfall of Babylon. Can't wait to see that, but that's in chapter 5. Verse 3, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs. The word eunuchs here just means officers. So they use eunuchs in more than one way in the scripture. It's just his officers. To bring what? Some of the children of Israel. Not all, just some. And some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. This is where they take Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Mordecai. He's the hero in the book of Esther. So they keep saying some, some, some to let us know that there's more waves of captivity to come. In the first wave, they take only the best and the brightest, the most valuable things, but not everything. Why not everything? Turn to the book of Jeremiah. Actually, God gives Jerusalem and Judah a chance to repent once they see the captivity begin. It could have been stopped. It could have been stopped. Go to Jeremiah chapter 16. This is kind of a rhetorical question, but how did um, you know, Hezekiah, you know, being a godly king... Uh, Hezekiah being a godly king, for the most part, he was. Like, how did Manasseh kind of come about? And then Josiah, and then, you know, how did all that... Yeah, the northern kingdom of Israel went into idolatry as soon as the nation split after the death of Solomon. But in the southern kingdom, they tended to go back and forth, one generation righteous, one generation wicked. And they would tend to flip-flop from generation to generation. What should you and I learn from that? Get on the right generation. Yeah, be in the right generation. But which generation was blessed by God and which was cursed by God? When they would walk uprightly, they would be blessed. When they would turn away from God, they would be cursed. They would repent, turn back to God, and be blessed. And as soon as they got blessed again, then they start going away from God, and then they get cursed. So in Jeremiah 16, let's look at verse 10. When we come to Jeremiah 16, the first wave of captives have already gone. And it shall be when you show this people all these words, that is, that there's more judgment coming. And they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? You shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord. They have walked after other gods and have served them 
and worshipped them that have forsaken me and not kept my law, my Torah. Now turn to chapter 17, verse 21. Something that stands out. They're still calling the Lord their God. They're still calling the Lord their God. Absolutely. They have got a ton of prophets in Jerusalem prophesying that God's going to bless us. He's not going to let us go into captivity. That Jeremiah is a false prophet. Don't listen to him. It's like the people are completely oblivious, thinking they're serving God. And, and they're like, well, what did we do? So they're like legitimately saying, what did we do? They are legitimately saying, we thought we were walking in God's favor. It's like Matthew chapter 7, isn't it? Verses 21 to 23. The people have been so misled by the false prophets that they think they are in God's good graces when they're not. While the blood is dripping from their fingers. While the blood's dripping from their fingers. Do we have priests and pastors today going to abortion clinics and blessing them for doing God's work? It's no different from the days of Jeremiah. Let's look at chapter 17, where God's going to give the people another chance. Even though the captivity's underway, there's still people left in Jerusalem, there's still the land of Judah, they still have some of the treasures, they still have some of the people. And in verse 21, Jeremiah 17, 21, Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey nor incline their ear, but made their neck stiff that they might not hear nor receive instruction. Verse 24, and it shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work on it, then shall enter the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the cities of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. So God said, if you will do this one thing, if you will simply hallow the Sabbath, God would not destroy Jerusalem. They would continue to have a descendant of David sitting on the throne. They would continue to be a nation. They would continue to have the temple. And what was their response? No. No. The Sabbath is not important to us. You know, that, that should be kind of a wake-up call for people because that was God's line in the sand for the people. That was God's line in the sand. With all the sins he could have picked, this was his line in the sand. But what did the false prophets say? Oh, God doesn't really care about the Sabbath. Yes, how about today? We don't count as a nation, count as a 
As a nation, we do not hallow the Sabbath. Are we in for God's judgment? You bet we are. You got all the false prophets out there saying what? Even the Lord himself broke Sabbath. Even the Lord himself broke Sabbath. Did he? He did not. It's a false teaching. But they had the same thing in Jeremiah's day. They had false prophets saying God doesn't really care about the Sabbath. That was old. It's just a day. It's just a day. What's one day to another? How many pastors do I talk to? And I say, Sunday's not the Sabbath. And they say, I don't want to talk about it. We believe it's the Sabbath. I don't want to hear about it. Yes, ma'am. Could, um, Could pastors be called false prophets? You wait until Judgment Day and see how many start going, but, but I thought. I didn't think. <laughs> yeah. How can we know for sure that Sunday is not the Sabbath? Because the Gospels say, Messiah arose on the day after the Sabbath. If Sunday is the day he arose, and it is, the Bible says on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, then Sunday can't be the day after itself. And how in the world was he crucified on Friday? <laughs> yeah, didn't happen. So weren't we doomed from the start? Didn't the people that settled America, were they not... The question is, the people that settled America, did all of them think that the Sabbath is Sunday? The answer is no. Some of them did, some of them didn't. Some of them fought very hard to keep the Sabbath and to keep Shabbat just as God commanded it. But they were the ones who lost out eventually. Okay, let's go back to Daniel. I don't want to get preachy. But does God care? The answer is yes, God cares. So verse 3, the instruction was not to go take them all. It was to take a portion. The reason only a portion is God was going to give Judah a chance to repent yet. If they would just have said, yes, we will keep Shabbat and kept it, then the entire nation would not have fallen. But as we keep reading, number four. Is that, Wayne, yes, ma'am. Doesn't that go back to Second Chronicles chapter 36 as well? The reason why Babylon, uh, while they went into captivity is because it says that they failed to keep the Sabbath, not just the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath year. Yeah. It tells us in Second Chronicles that the reason they went into captivity for 70 years because that was the number of Sabbath years they failed to keep. Does God care about the Sabbath? He absolutely does. Is it okay to just pick any old day? No, it's not. What day did the pagans worship the sun god? Sunday. So in verse 3, when he said, take some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, he was very specific about how to know which ones to take. What were the criteria? So I've got a number one out there in go to meeting land. Let me go look and see what it is. Yep, Lori's correct. If you look at even a calendar today in America... Sunday's the first day of the week. So verse 4 says, young men, don't take the old guys, 
in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking. So don't take the ugly ones. Just go get the good-looking ones. Yes, Daniel. Yeah, the young ones. Yeah, Na'ar could be people in their 20s. Yeladim, we're talking about young people. In whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom. So they're not babies. They're old enough to be wise. Possessing knowledge and quick to understand, which means they're teachable. Because they're going to want them taught the... Aramaic language and the Babylonian cultures and literatures. So they want kids who can learn, kids that are teachable. How much easier is it for a child to learn a foreign language than, say, oh, a 66-year-old? <laughs> hundred times, yeah, I don't doubt it for a minute. Who had ability to serve in the king's palace. These are not people to go farm the land. These are people to join his palace staff to be advisors, to be quick studies, to be able to advise him on how to rule and how to make money and stuff. It says, on whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. So take the best and the brightest of Judah and assimilate them into the Babylonian culture. Take away their Hebrew. Make them learn the Aramaic so that they lose their desire to go home and forget that they were part of Judah but rather graft them in and assimilate them into Babylonian culture and language and make them part of the people. That's what the objective is. Verse 5. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. Do you think they bring the king the dregs and the worst of the food? No, he's going to get the very best, the very tastiest, the very freshest. And three years of training for them. Why three years of training? That's when they're going to learn the language. They're going to learn the culture. They're going to learn the literature. So he wants them, when they're presented to him in the court, to be fully integrated and functioning in his court. So, so at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. How long does it take to learn a new language? Still You're still learning Spanish? Since high school. <laughs> Since high school, okay. Verse 6. Now from those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice every one of those names has either God or the Lord in it. Is that going to be a problem for the Babylonians? That's yeah. yeah, going to be a problem. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. The me is who. The Shah is shell made from, and ale is God. So who is made of the same stuff as God? Don't know why you'd name your kid that, but somebody did. <laughs> yeah, why? Azariah means the Lord helps. 
So every one of those names references God or the Lord, and that's not going to go over too well with the Babylonians. Because as part of the assimilation process, not only do they want to disassociate themselves from the language, culture, and literature of Israel, but they also want to separate them from the God of Israel to make them worship the God of the Babylonians. So in verse 7, he gives them new names. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. You see that word Bel in Belteshazzar? That's a shortening of the word Baal. So includes the name of their pagan god. To Hananiah, he called him Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Be honest, how many of you could have told me the four Hebrew names? You can all tell me Daniel, but do you not know the rest of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Yeah, that's the way we all learned them, I think. What's that? If Daniel's name was, if Daniel's name was carried throughout the book, why didn't they carry the Hebrew names throughout the book? Is there a reason? Let's watch and see how it's done, who we're talking to. It is easier to say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or people can't say Abednego, Abednego, Abednego. <laughs> Yeah, he wasn't a billy goat, no, Abednego. I'm saying that because I'm Yeah. And... When my first ancestor that came to America came to America and had kids here, among his kids he named them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three of the boys. He didn't give them the Hebrew names probably because he couldn't remember those. <laughs> he just gave them the names he could remember, I guess. Okay, <clears throat> verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Oh, 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 let's talk about that. Why would he think he might defile himself? Let's go first to Leviticus 11.4. What's that? Oh, I'm sure it was, yeah. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 4. You don't think the Babylonians ate kosher, do you? No. Leviticus 11, 4. Yep, we're going to go through all those because all those are very true. So 11, 4 of Leviticus says, Nevertheless, these you shall not eat. And it begins the shall not eat, in Hebrew, lo tochlu, which is a permanent, eternal commandment, that we will not eat these unclean things. Of course, the Babylonians didn't live by those rules. So look at Acts chapter 10, verse 14. Acts chapter 10, verse 14.
But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Why not? Because God said, Thou shalt not. What did we learn about eating unclean things in 2 Corinthians chapter 6? Does it have an effect? Does it matter to God? Yes, it does. It says, do not cling to it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, it says, And what agreement is the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they should be my people. But that was written to Israel. Why does Paul apply this to the Gentile believers? Because we have been grafted in. He says it applies to everybody, Jew or Gentile. Therefore, come out from among them, be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch. Is not touch. It's what? Cling to that which is unclean. And I will receive you. I'll be a father to you, shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Does it matter? It matters. So the number one reason he, he wants to refuse it is it's going to be unclean. Animals that God forbid us to eat. Second reason been offered to idols. Let's go to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. People say, but Wayne, these things don't apply today. Yeah, read Acts 15. Verse 20. We write to them to abstain from things, what? Polluted by idols. If food has been offered to idols, is it okay for us to eat? If you think so, turn to Revelation. Yeah, I figured. Turn to Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. <laughs> How many times in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 did the Lord say, they're eating things sacrificed to idols? Look at chapter 2, verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Wait. Yes, ma'am. If you go to the grocery store and you see a pack of meat that's marked halal, that means it's been offered to Allah. So yes, we do have that even today. Uh, what, what do you do if you're checking? I was checking on vitamins, and this man assured me that all of the vitamins this company produced were both uh, kosher and halal. So, 
how can they, I mean, if you... They're, they're not going to sacrifice pills to a pagan god. They no. simply mean there's nothing in it that would offend the Muslims. So that's different from meat. No okay. pork yeah, no products. Yeah. Okay. Not only to eat things sacrificed to idols, says, and to commit sexual immorality. Just today, in today's prophecy update, top news headlines, they show a bishop in England, I think it's the Bishop of York, saying that um, gay sex is okay so long as the men are in a committed, long-standing relationship. Is that what the Bible says? No. So is having a mistress if it's a committed long-term relationship? No, just ask your wife. She'll tell you no, that's not right. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Revelation, I know. In Revelation chapter 2, yes, ma'am? Wayne? Yes? They just did a whole new um, uh, position on, on those questions in the Anglican Church and to show you how confused things have become well, the Archbishop of York said more or less what you just said. The Archbishop of Canterbury, um, while the Archbishop of York would bless marriages, the Archbishop of Canterbury won't. Good. Just it's spreading. It's spreading. And it shouldn't. But thank you for adding that, Edmund. One question, Brother Wayne. Go ahead. I also saw where there were some noodles out there that uh, it wasn't skinny pasta but with some other noodles that said certified halal on it too. It's not meat so I wouldn't worry about it. She's talking about some noodles she found that were marked halal. That simply means there's no pork in it or things that will offend Muslims. That's a good question. Yeah it is a good question. The issue is meat. Meat. Yeah, you don't sacrifice noodles to anybody, as far as I know. Unless it's a person's noodle. As far as I know. But Revelation... I'm losing control here. <laughs> Revelation 2. Let's just take one more look at it, and then we'll go back. In verse 20, Revelation 2, verse 20, also, another church, the church of Thyatira. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So I've heard many times the Apostle Paul said, we can eat food sacrificed to idols. The Lord says, oh no, we can't. And Paul doesn't say we can either. That's just taking things oh, out of context. That's making things up. That's, there you go. That's making things up. As it goes to it, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. something? Yeah, sure. Probably beside the point that today, just as Romans talks about when a person stands his ground against God, God says, okay, multiply, go ahead, do everything wrong you want to, start ahead. He did the same thing with um, 
who was Manasseh's father? Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Remember, Hezekiah got sick. Yes. And the prophet said, you're going to die. And he just broke down and cried like a baby and said, don't let me die. And God said, I'm going to let Israel multiply its sin. Okay, I'm going to give you more years, 15 years. And during that time, Manasseh was born, and that exploded the sin. Yep, and that was the time also that he showed the king of Babylon everything in the kingdom. Instead of showing him how great a God we worship, he showed him how great we were. Exactly. Look at what I have amassed. Look at what I have accomplished. It wasn't that he chose to show them something. His whole motive was wrong. Yes. And, you know, and God said, it, you, you really are judged by your motives. Sometimes we sin not even knowing we're doing it. If our heart is, is just deceived, I don't think that's nearly as serious as knowing we're doing it. You are and correct. It's, it's like eating halal meat without knowing. Okay, so you know, we know that's not a true God. But if you know it, Okay, now you've got a thing, you're disobeying the scripture. Yep. So there's a big difference between eating halal meat and eating halal meat. Yeah. So on that point, that's 1 Corinthians 10, 28. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it. Okay. The third point and the reason Daniel refuses the meat and the wine is because of the reason it's being offered is to try and get the children of Israel to compromise. To get comfortable in assimilation. Kind of like a bribe even. Because they're offering the best food and the best wine in the nation. If they will simply sell out their God and become part of their people. So those are the three reasons. Um... This also comes back to a story I shouldn't tell. Many years ago, maybe getting closer to 40 years now, during the last days that I was in the Baptist church, before I found a Messianic congregation, the Sunday school lesson was on this book of Daniel and how Daniel here proves that drinking wine is a sin. To which I raised my hand and said, well, he also didn't eat the meat. He's eating meat a sin. <laughs> and I said, shut up and get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So it wasn't that it was wine. It's that what the wine represented and the meat that went with it. Okay, verse 9, back in Daniel 1. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Who brought Daniel into the good graces? God did it. Why did God do it? And why does it tell us that right after Daniel refuses the meat and the wine? His heart is right. Is this a blessing? Is it because he refuses the tainted meat and wine? It has to be that way because what happens in chapter 2? He has to be in Nebuchadnezzar's good graces for that to take place. Yes. But what if Daniel had said, sure, give me all this piggy and wine and I'll just get myself drunk and we'll just have a roaring good time. The book 
Book of Daniel would be nine verses long. Yeah, probably. That was my thought. Yes, ma'am. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? We're going to find that they refuse it as well. Mm. But first, we need to know that Daniel refuses. And, verse 9, it looks like that God brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of chief of the eunuchs because of his faithfulness to God. Which is interesting. Who is he? Well, verse 10. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink. Now there's what? The king ordered me to do this, and you want me to not do it? You want me to disobey the king? What does disobeying the king usually result in? You might lose your head, yeah. It says, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. King isn't going to see Daniel for three years. And the chief of the eunuchs is afraid that in three years, Daniel's going to be skin and bones. And remember, the king said, bring the pretty boys, the good-looking ones. And he's saying, you go in there all scrawny and all, I'm going to lose my head. In fact, that's exactly what he says. Then you would endanger my head before the king. Then look at Daniel's faith. Verse 11. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs would set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants. Notice servants is plural. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are part of the deal. For ten days, let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, not before the king, before you. And the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, and as you see fit, so deal with your servants. You know what people say? They say, Daniel said, if you then think we don't look so good, we'll eat your meat and drink your wine. Did he say that? No, he said, do what you want to with us. Which makes me think, he was saying, we're still not going to eat it. You can put us to death if you want to, but we're not going to do it. Now, I wasn't there. When we get to heaven, we'll watch the videotapes. But I think that's exactly what he's saying. It's test us after ten days, and then do with us as you will. Verse 14, so he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. Why does he consent? Because God brought them into favor. God brought them into favor. So even though he's going to risk his own life, he said, well, okay, we'll, we'll try this for 10 days. Verse 15. At the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. So instead of being skinnier and scrawnier, they're actually healthier and fatter. They must have been some good vegetables. The note I made is, this just shows the grace of God. Yeah, I looked at the 
which is usually the word for vegetable, it's, it means pulse. Pulse. So yeah. it's like not even like carrots and it's just seeds. It's oatmeal. Yeah. He said, if you look at the word in Hebrew, it's not vegetables like carrots. It's like the seeds that get ground up into oatmeal. So like fodder, like you might feed the animals. Only nice and clean, I'm sure. So they passed the test. They failed the test. Somebody may have pushed the button accidentally. That was their yeah. excitement. It happens to me sometimes when the keys are in the pocket. But okay. So they passed the test. So verse 16, thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables or metzar. Melzar. Melzar is the word for the steward. Okay. How much you want to bet the chief of the steward says, well, I will take the meat and wine. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to diminish the quantity, so, hey, I'll take it home and eat it. Okay. Verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. Is this a blessing for their faithfulness to him, their refusal to um, compromise and give in to Babylonian sins and immoralities and uncleannesses? Quite possibly. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, what days? The three years. When the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them and found them all, and among them all, sorry, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. As far as we know, the rest of the captives were just fine with the meat and the wine. These four were the ones who refused because of their refusal to compromise the word of God. And they're the ones that stand out as the best, the brightest, and just rise above the crowd. Therefore, they serve before the king. What happens to the others, it doesn't tell us. But these four get to be in the king's courtes, courtesans. Yes, sir. The word stood, Ahmad. Mm -hmm. So in his courtyard, it's one of his courtiers. Yep. So they're like, it's, it's more than just being a servant. It's like they're right there. They are right there. They're there to advise the king. Yeah. Which I think is just cool as can be. We're trying, and in all matters of wisdom. And understanding about which the king examined them, 
He found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. So these magicians and astrologers are the ones who had been advising the king before. And he said they don't even hold a candle to these four Jewish captives. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So let me give you just an overview. Oh, but first, before I do that, we need to talk about that word, magicians. Because that word is not right. That word should be necromancers. Necromancers. Necromancers commune with the dead. So they're the ones who pretend to talk to the dead spirits and get wisdom and, and guidance from them. Let's see places where this is used in scripture. Let's go to Genesis 41. Genesis 41 verse 8. Yeah, yeah. Doing tricks, yeah. Verse 8. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubling, sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who would interpret them for Pharaoh. Who does Pharaoh call to interpret his dreams? The necromancers. Who were his chief necromancers? The sons of Balaam, according to the sages. Jonas and Jambres. Yep, they were supposed to be, according to the sages, the sons of Balaam. Then Exodus chapter 7. And notice, they didn't do a good job of interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. No, I had to go to Joseph. Exodus chapter 7, verse 11. Now Moses is before Pharaoh. Verse 11, but Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians, there's the necromancers of Egypt. They also did in like manner with their enchantments. So at the first of the plagues, the magicians were able to duplicate or appear to duplicate some of the miraculous things. But then go to verse 22. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord has said. Because they could make water look like blood, Pharaoh said, ah, it's all just a bunch of tricks. <coughs> but then go to Exodus chapter 8, verse 7. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. Again, they're able to appear to duplicate the miracle. But then let's go down to verses 18 and 19. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there are lice on men and beasts. Why couldn't they create life? They could do tricks. They could make water look red. But... Does Satan have the power to create life? 
No. So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Meaning these aren't tricks now, boss. This is getting real. In Exodus 9.11... When it's time for the boils, and the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and in all the Egyptians. So not only could they not duplicate the actual miracles, they couldn't stop God's miracles from coming either. So they're all necromancers? Yeah, these are all necromancers. They commune with the dead. They talk to the dead. It's like the witch of Endor. Like the witch of Endor. So, okay, back to Daniel chapter 2, no, chapter 1, verse 21. Then Dan, Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. I was going to give you the list of the kings, so if you're curious. After Nebuchadnezzar, comes evil Merodach. After evil Merodach comes Belshazzar. He's the one in Daniel 5 that throws the big party and God writes on the wall. Said you forgot to invite me. It's interesting that the name is close to what they call, or it sounds close to what they call Daniel. Yeah, Belteshazzar versus Belshazzar. Yeah, very close. And again, the bell in Belshazzar stands for Baal. Then came Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. They were the two kings of the Medes and Persians that overthrew Babylon. Followed by Ahasuerus, who ends up marrying Esther. And they have a son, Darius the Persian, also known as Artaxerxes Longeminus the son of Esther, who lets the children of Israel go home. Let's go to Ezra chapter 1, verse 4. Ezra chapter 1, verse 4. We're going there because Daniel 1.21 said, Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. And that is the Cyrus who overthrew Babylon. Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that is, 70 years of captivity, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so they made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. He's overthrown Babylon. He now rules the world. And also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. When did he do that? In Isaiah chapter 44 and 45. Who is among you of all his people? Be as God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. 
And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. When Cyrus tells the children of Israel, whoever wants to go back can go back, they say Daniel was one of those that returned. Let me just briefly read uh, an article called On Shea Knesset Haggadah, The Men of the Great Assembly. It says, approximately 50 years before prophecy terminated in 3448, a body of 120 of the greatest Torah scholars assumed the spiritual leadership of the Jewish people. This august assembly led by Ezra functioned as the Sanhedrin of the nation. Although scholars disagree as to whether all 120 sages served on the court simultaneously, or the Sanhedrin was composed of its normal quorum of 71 members, while the others were alternates. Nevertheless, all agree that the Anshe Knesset Haggadah was the greatest scholarly assembly in the history of the Jewish people. Membership was composed of prophets and non-prophets. Among its more prominent members were Mordecai, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and Shimon HaTzadik. And I see that I've run out of time. But there's always been a big debate. Did, annual, did Daniel die in Babylon or did he return? And according to the sages, he returned as part of the great assembly to help Israel recover from the Babylonian captivity and restore itself back to the worship of the true and living God. And that would be pretty miraculous in itself. This would be, what, 80 years old? That would be pretty miraculous. He would have been at least, I'd say, 16 when he went in. He was in 70 years, so 86 years old. Yeah, he would have been an aged man. And wouldn't they have built a special tomb for Daniel? There is a place they call the tomb of Daniel in Babylon, which is why people say, hey, he didn't return. But that doesn't mean Daniel's buried in it. I'm just saying if he came back to Israel, they had a way of knowing the important people's tombs. Yes. Abraham, Sarah, and all him. So you would think had he come back, he would be honored highly. And he would certainly would have had a special and may well have okay we're out of time we'll pick up next week lord willing in chapter 2 verse 1